This is a two-part sermon, chapter 4 this morning, chapter 5 this evening, but they're both part of the one, the one message, really. Revelation chapter 4, we'll read from verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV, and John the Apostle is writing, and he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And this is God's word. Until fairly recently, as you entered the front bedroom upstairs in our home in East Lothian, the first thing that would have caught your eye would have been a shelf on which were set a number of books, all of them my wife's, by the way. These books were held tightly together by two weighted bookends. It's the sort of thing you would see in many a bedroom uh, throughout the country. Now the book of the Revelation is a little bit, little bit like that in the sense that it also has two book ends. It's true to say it's a magnificent, although at times mysterious book that declares the triumph of good over evil. It's true to say it's a book that confirms the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over Satan. It's true to say it's a book that proclaims the overcoming by the church of the world. 
It's true to say that it's a book that has been a source of great comfort to God's hard-pressed people down through the centuries. But in terms of its structure, in terms of its composition, in terms of its layout, it's a book that has two book ends in the form of an introduction in chapter 1 and a conclusion in chapter 22. And if you keep that in mind, it will help you to see that between these two bookends, between chapter 1 and chapter 22, there are several visions given to the Apostle John. He's in exile. He's in Patmos. Now, good and godly men have looked at these visions in different ways. I'm sure most of you will know that. They've come to different conclusions as to what they mean, and we need to respect that. Some have seen these visions as referring to what's happened in the past. Some see them as referring to what's going to happen in the future. Some see them as referring to what's happening in the here and now, in the present. Well, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. I'm not here to win an argument at that level. Whatever it means in detail, and we're all entitled to our own opinion, we must never forget that the book of the Revelation was written to tell the people of God, living in the first century, and the people of God living in the 21st century, and the people of God living in every century in between, that when it comes to the final showdown, when it comes to the curtain falling, the Lamb wins. And I want to remind you before I go any further this morning, that the book of the Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. Now I want to lay to the one side as much as I possibly can the different theories and I want to simply to look out, pull out those spiritual principles that will help us live the Christian life tomorrow morning in the place where God has set us down. The last thing I want to do is to treat this book as a, a sort of jigsaw puzzle and prophecy. I haven't come with a detailed chart. A number of times I've been in homes and there it is on the wall. I haven't come with any detailed chart on how and when everything is going to unfold. Nor have I come so that you and I can do a wee bit of crystal ball gazing. Let me just say this. The first vision has to do with the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's in chapters 2 and 3. But it's generally recognized that seven is the number of perfection, the number of completeness. The seven churches are meant to represent the church, the whole church in its essence and in its entirety from the first coming to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when you're reading those letters, you can expect to come across anything referred to in any of those letters to those seven churches to be found in any church, in any country, at any point in church history. That was the first vision John received. The words in chapter 4, after this, or after these things, depending on which translation you've got, chapter 4, verse 1, they're probably best, I think, to 
not to be understood as being chronological in terms of the time scale of events taking place in history, but I think they're meant to be chronological in terms of John's receiving of these visions. He sees one vision of the seven churches, and after that he sees another vision. He's simply telling us that after having seen the first vision of Jesus walking among the churches in chapters 2 and 3, he now sees something else. Well, what is it he sees? He sees an open door and he hears a voice like a trumpet. He's being called up to a higher level to see things from God's perspective. John's being allowed, if you like, a peep into heaven. But this heaven is not the heaven where the birds fly. It's not the heaven where the stars shine. You can't get to this heaven by way of an air balloon or a spaceship. This is God's heaven. John's permitted to see something that's mind-blowing, really, for finite human beings like us. And he's allowed to record what he sees so that not only will he find help from what he sees, but we will find help from what he sees. It's a vision that helps us to see life in the here and now, not just in the past, not just in the future, but in the here and now from a different perspective. I don't know how you look out and see life. Well, here's a little glimpse of how we can see it from a different perspective. From a divine perspective. The vision is of a reality that transcends what we can see with these physical eyes of ours. It's a spiritual vision. The Apostle John, he's invited to come up to see what's going on behind the scenes. And to also see what's taking place in history. From his time to our time and to the end of time. What does he see and hear and describe for us? In the spirit as he's caught up to heaven. Now what I want to do this morning is try and draw out what a previous pastor of this church, who's just finished his series at Keswick, would call the plain things and the main things. That's what I want us to look at. And I hope you'll be able to take them home with you, ponder them this week, work them out. What does he see? He catches a glimpse of the throne. We're not to think here in material terms. He sees a throne, but the throne's not to be thought of as a mere piece of furniture. Can you imagine the eternal God sitting on a chair? That's not the picture. The symbolism of this throne speaks of God's sovereign rule, God's authority. The throne is telling us about something we need to know. Something we need to be reminded of continually. Namely, that there is somebody up there in control of everything that's happening down here. John writes in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. God's telling us, is he not in this vision? Supreme power does not lie with the United States, never mind Donald Trump, doesn't lie with the United Kingdom or the United Arab Emirates or the United Nations or anyone else. Supreme power 
Absolute authority lies with the one who is the sovereign Lord. This throne represents the command center of the universe. If we can put it in human language. This is the control tower. This is the control room where the God who calls the shots supervises and surveys all that's going on everywhere. Everything's under his sovereign sway. All that happens on earth and all that happens throughout the universe needs to be seen from the perspective of this great one who's working out all things after the counsel of his own will. And we need to remember that within that panoramic sweep of all things there comes our temptations and our trials and our tragedies and our tears. This vision is telling us that someone is there holding the reins of power. And it's not Lord Chance. And it's not Lady Luck. What a relief that ought to bring to any soul stretched to the limits by adverse circumstances. We are not at the mercy of blind random forces in nature. We do not take our guidance from the stars. We come together today here in this building to worship the God who made the stars. We're not the victims of fate. This God we can call our Father. He's at the helm. He has his hand on the tiller. And that's what the pilgrim church, the persecuted church of the first century needed to know. They were under the cosh. They were being thrown to the lions. They needed to know that come what may, God is in control. And he's going to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what the present day hard-pressed church needs to know, needs to be reminded of continually. And unless we can see this, this picture of the sovereignty of God, unless we can see this in the midst of the storm, our lives will crumble in the crucible. I wonder how many of us this morning need to catch a glimpse of the throne. How did Isaiah put it? 800 years BC, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year of national crisis, I saw also the Lord. And when you read church history throughout the ages, the people of God have been able to press on towards the mark for the prize. They've been able to keep on keeping on. They have endured. How did they do it? How did Moses do it? How did Abraham do it? How did Joseph do it? How did Daniel do it? How can we do it? Seeing him who is invisible. So the church may be struggling. Satan may be opposing. The world may be mocking. You may feel you're drowning. But John's telling us, God is reigning. He's on the throne and he will remember his own. And the significance of the vision of the throne towering over every other throne, towering over the affairs of the nations, is that it forever underlines the sovereignty of God over everything and everyone. And I say that without destroying human responsibility and human accountability. John Calvin once said, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. 
how true that is. From day one, back in Genesis 1, God is the one who brought everything into being out of nothing and he's the one who upholds everything by the word of his power. Just recently, I was listening to somebody preaching and they were pulling out what are the, the, the four necessary questions that need to be answered to have a Christian worldview. In fact, to have any worldview, there are four questions that need to be answered. haven't got time to go through the four of them, but the first one was this. Where did everything come from? We've got three possibilities. Did it come from nothing? Did it come from something? Or did it come from someone? And you read the first verse of the Bible and it tells us. Here's the Christian worldview. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that is this picture here. From day one, back in Genesis 1, God is the one who brings everything into being out of nothing. He upholds everything by the word of his power. This is not a vision of something that's going to happen in the future. This is not a vision of something that happened away in the past. This is a vision for here and now. This is the way it is with our lives right now, but from a different perspective, from a divine perspective. The world has either ignored this truth, or rejected this truth, or hated this truth, but sometimes the church has forgotten this truth, or questioned this truth, or neglected this truth. But in this vision, it's this wonderful, unchanging, eternal truth that is brought into focus for our comfort. For our encouragement, there is a throne, and it's occupied. What more need I say? Pronounce the benediction and we could go home. We've heard enough to keep us going. But there's more. What more needs to be said? Jehovah reigns, let all the people tremble. And what follows here is not a description of God. I mean, God is beyond description. We can experience God, but we can't explain him. Hendrickson says this dazzling picture is of the effulgence here of his radiance. It's the outshining of his beauty, his majesty, his glory. Listen to the language. John puts it down. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Now, without reading too much into the meaning of these colors and these things, it's enough to know that this picture provides us with a vivid, symbolic description of the awe-inspiring, many-splendored, multicolored, mind-blowing glory of God. And John goes on. He says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. When you look at this, it's, it's breathtaking for any human being to even catch a glimpse of such awesome glory. And a number of things are mentioned that appear to bring together aspects of divine truth by way of Old Testament imagery. When you start to examine it, the rainbow, for example, takes you back to the days of Noah, not long after the storm of God's judgment was passed. The thunder and lightning, that takes you back to Moses on Mount Sinai and the giving and receiving of the law. The seven-branched lampstand takes you back to the tabernacle, to the the temple in Jerusalem draws our attention to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and God telling his people, educating his people, I am a holy God. You must draw near this way, not any other way. 
Other details in the passage have an Old Testament setting in mind as well. Difficult to see clearly what lies at the heart of this incredible sight. Other than to say that these things reflect the glory of God. And they simply remind us of his character, of his great and gracious and glorious God who sits on this throne. We stand on the edges of his ways. We peer through the mist of our finite, shallow, limited knowledge and experience in order to try and understand what these strange symbols are all about. But if this is all meant to symbolize an outshining of the glory of God, which it is, is it not safe to say that we are simply meant to see in this vision of the throne of God a manifestation, a demonstration, a revelation in symbolic form of the kind of God he is? The many attributes of God. Are we not meant to see here, be reminded here of the faithfulness of God? The rainbow. Are we not meant to see here the righteousness of God? The thunder and lightning on Sinai and the giving of the law. Are we not meant to see here the holiness of God? And so we could go on. Just to mention a few of those attributes. And as far as the 24 elders and the 24 thrones are concerned, some commentators think they represent all the redeemed people of God who shall reign with them in purity and honor throughout all eternity. They might be right. They take that view because there are 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament, from whom came the people of God B.C. and A.D. Now remember, this is apocalyptic literature. This is not meant to be read as prose. The sea of clear glass as crystal before the throne is a reminder to all of us of a majestic, transcendent God who dwells in unapproachable light and who is separate from all his creatures. How did Faber put it in his hymn? Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be. No matter how close we get to him, there's still an ocean separating us in terms of who we are and what we are in comparison to who he is. And what he is, we will never become God in becoming like God. We will always be his loved and adopted creatures, his loved and adopted children. But what an encouragement this vision must have been to all those saints down through the centuries who suffered for Jesus' sake. And what an encouragement surely it is for us today. What an encouragement it is particularly for God's people in Syria. I watched a program in the telly the other night there. What is going on and what has gone on in that country? Unbelievable. Iraq. North Korea. Increasingly, North India. Eritrea. Pakistan. Turkmenistan. Tajikistan. This vision is telling us that God is the great supreme reality. He reigns. And there is a place reserved and prepared for all his people, all his servants, all his children around his throne. We need to keep that in mind, brothers and sisters. We're so earthbound. There's a throne. And there's one seated on a throne. John catches a glimpse of the throne. In these days of national and international crisis... We watch the television far too much. We're besotted with it. We're soaked with it. If we just take a wee bit of time to read Revelation chapter 4, it will lift our eyes a wee bit higher. Here's the second thing. He hears a message from the throne. I'm trying to give the big picture. We're not going into the secondary issues, the details of the matter. That's how God's people fall out. The big picture. He hears a message from the throne. 
Francis Schaeffer last century wrote a trilogy of books to show how modern thought has abandoned the very idea of truth. Some of you will have read these books. One of them is entitled The God Who Is There. Another one is called Escape from Reason. And another is called He Is There, He Is Not Silent. God speaks. Now we're told here that in the centre around the throne were four living creatures that are covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now let me try and give an identity to these living creatures first of all. And again, it's, it's... I'm not dogmatic on this, but it would appear that the most likely answer to the question is they represent the cherubim. Don't make the mistake of literalizing all of this or you'll end up with something grotesque. These eyes all around them, these living creatures, simply symbolize awareness, alertness, comprehensive knowledge. I'm not plucking that thought out of the air when I say that. The cherubim are the highest order of angels. If you take time to consult the book of Ezekiel in the very first chapter, you'll see a striking similarity between what Ezekiel says way back then and what John sees now. And in both cases, they're called the living ones, the living creatures. And there are four of them associated with the throne of God. And the appearance of their faces, we're told, is compared to that of a lion, an ox, a man, and a flying eagle. No doubt there is some significance to the number four. They have the characteristics, however, of strength, a lion. Service, an ox. Intelligence, man. Swiftness, an eagle. These characteristics in the four creatures are always everywhere ascribed to angelic beings in the Bible. So great and glorious is this throne in heaven that these high-ranking angels arrange themselves around it in reverence and in humility and in awe. They're ever ready to carry out the will of the sovereign Lord of the universe. You would expect to find these creatures around the throne of God, always at the ready. But what I want you to notice is the message that they're constantly repeating. Day and night, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Where they are, God is speaking to them. They are now speaking to us. These cherubim, these living creatures living in his immediate presence, they're forever seeing and loving the glory of God. And there's a message they want to communicate to us. Three very important things to mention in this connection with regards to the one who is on the throne. God is holy. I know this is the 21st century. But God is holy. The Bible speaks of God in this way with great consistency. 
Wherever God's name is mentioned, it's qualified by this adjective, holy, more than by all the other adjectives qualifying the name of God in the Bible put together. Why do you think that is? Because God wants us not to forget this. From the very first song mentioned in the Bible, the song of Moses in Exodus 15, Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? From that song in Exodus 15 to the last song mentioned in the Bible, Revelation 15, sung by those who gained the victory over the beast, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. God is a holy God. Everything about him is holy. His love is not sentimental slush. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. And he's almighty. His majesty is beyond our grasp. He's the one who spoke everything into being, who keeps it all together. You can't put a glorious God like this in your pocket. You can't stick him on a shelf in your house. You can't manipulate this God to suit our own ends or use him as some kind of a bargaining chip. The whole universe is a theater for his glory. His footprints, his fingerprints are everywhere. Everywhere you look, you see evidence of his power. He's a God who is really God. He's the Lord God Almighty. Nothing is impossible with him. That doesn't mean he can do anything. God can't square a circle. God can't lie. God can't deny himself. God can't break his promises. But what it does mean is that he can do anything he wants to do. Derek Thomas, who took over from Sinclair Ferguson in the States, in the Carolinas just recently, he said, such a thought is as encouraging as it is intimidating. He does what he wills in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And as the Puritans would say, he's a precisionist. When he does it, he does it precisely. And he's everlasting. Darwin is supposed to have put God to death. Dawkins would like to do it. But God is everlasting. Willie Still, the late Willie Still says there are the three tenses of this holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty's existence. They express his eternity. The God, this God, is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. He is, he always has been, he always will be, the great unchangeable I am. I know people prefer to create their own God, but what they create is nothing more than a figment of their fallen imagination. This is the God who has revealed himself. This is the one true and living God. This is the God who created us. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the universe. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is the God of Israel. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God of the Scottish Covenanters. This is the God of the Continental Reformers. This is the God of the English Puritans. This is the God of the French Huguenots. This is the God of history. This is the God of geography. He is what he says he is. Not what some people think he is. He's absolutely holy. He's separate and different from all of us. 
He's the Lord God Almighty. Nothing compares with his power and his majesty. He's everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. He was, he is, and he is to come. Can you see, I wonder, you know, if this were to happen to us this morning, myself included, if you and I could only just get this morning a glimpse of the throne. Just a glimpse. If only we could hear just a few words, a message, living fire into our hearts and minds. And finally in this, John describes a scene now around the throne. This scene in heaven culminates in worship directed towards the one who sits on the throne. I need to tell you that chapter 5, as I said earlier, is to be taken along with chapter 4, so we haven't covered every detail, nor could we cover every detail. We haven't covered every aspect of this vision, nor could we. I couldn't. I'm not capable. Both these chapters are part of the same vision. Chapter 5 is going to focus on the God of redemption. Here, I think it's interesting, it's more than interesting, the focus is on the God of creation. Look at what takes place in verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits in the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits in the throne, worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns. We were just singing about it, weren't we? They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. The focus is on God as the creator. Worship is all about our response to God. And it begins by acknowledging the living God as our creator. Yes, we come here to worship into this building. But when you and I get up and go out those doors there, we go out to worship this great God. Notice what happens here. The four living creatures, the cherubim, begin the oratorio of worship only to be joined by the 24 elders and if that represents God's people God's servants throughout the ages by the time you get to the end of chapter 5 you have the community of the angelic host you have all the created beings in the entire universe joining in it begins with a quartet as it were joined by a choir that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger the cherubim take the initiative to give God the glory and honour and thanks that is his due but what they do only triggers those other servants of God represented in the 24 elders joining in, laying their crowns before the throne, only to be joined by countless other created beings until everyone everywhere is engaged in this act of worship. I'm struck by the fact that worship is first of all due to this living, holy, almighty, eternal God as the creator of all things. I don't think we realize just how important or significant those words are in Genesis 1.1. How tragic, how treasonable it is for sections of the church, never mind human society, to abandon the truth that the Bible so clearly teaches. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Spurgeon referred in his day to evolution as being one of the devil's most successful contracts. He referred to it as the abyss of absurdity. All of us need to be reminded of this every day. 
We need to learn to bring to the one who sits on this throne glory, honor, thanksgiving as our creator. We must teach the rising generation and we must not be afraid or ashamed to tell our contemporaries, no matter how clever they are, we are not being obscurantist in doing this. We're not burying our heads in the sand. We must not be ashamed to tell our contemporaries of this foundational fundamental truth. Is it not the fundamental of all fundamentals? Is this not the foundation of everything? All things were created by him and for him. Miss that and you miss the whole meaning to life, I would say. And in the process you throw away the key of knowledge and understanding. And you commit intellectual and spiritual suicide. If you reject this, you become guilty of trampling the truth of God into the ground. Life becomes a pointless, empty, meaningless, hopeless existence. But when you find this key, and when this key finds you and shakes you to the depths of your being... You will bow down before this great king. You will see that life is a gift from him. You will know that every breath you breathe comes from him. You begin to realize that I was created in God's image. For God's pleasure. And you know that you were meant to live for his glory, not for your own glory. And you you then begin to take off in a trajectory full of adventure, full of discovery. And you soon begin to realize that the half has not been told you of his glory and of his grace. As it is revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we pure, puny little creatures, we rebelled against this great God. Sin is a serious business. But God had an eternal plan. And that's all going to come out in chapter 5. You discover more and more as time goes by that this great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, is no disappointment. Sinclair Ferguson tells it this way in his book entitled In Christ Alone. I'm almost finished. Only Sinclair could put it this way. Before all time, prior to all worlds, When there was nothing outside of God himself. When the Father, Son and Spirit found eternal, absolute and unimaginable blessing, pleasure and joy in their holy trinity. It was their agreed purpose to create a world. That world would fall. But in unison and at infinitely great cost, this glorious triune God planned. To bring us grace and salvation. And as we come just as we are to him just as he is. We come repenting of our sins. We come putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did for sinners on the cross. Then we embark on a pilgrim journey through this maze of a fallen fractured world. With the word of God as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we find that this God of truth through the spirit of truth has given us in this book here the word of truth. And we begin to follow the one who said I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And we find ourselves on a journey that will culminate in spending an eternity with the one who made us, loves us has saved us and has saved countless others in the new heaven and the new earth. We find ourselves in what the wise man once called the path of the just, which is like a shining light 
that shines more and more unto the perfect day. Do you know what I read this morning? Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. Princes, prime ministers, kings would want to see and hear what you and I have. Don't take it for granted, brothers and sisters. Ask God to make it real. A glimpse from the throne. Hearing God speaking to you. And seeing yourself as part of this great gathering. That will be his. For all eternity. Father in heaven. Help us. Help us to see. Just a glimpse. Of your glory this day. May we never be the same again. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.